thousand generations of Jedi Knights and Guardians of Peace, Justice, Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic. Last time we finished up Tales for the Jedi, Tales of the Jedi, but let's be honest, the most important thing we discussed was Jedi sex habits. Now, in episode 13, we plunge headlong into the Mandalorian Wars and the Knights of the Old Republic comics to see how far we can get. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in legends. Before we move on to our next story, we need to discuss the timeline of galactic events from the end of Redemption in 3986 BBY through the beginning of the Knights of the Old Republic comics in 3964. Due to the nature of the storytelling in the comics, which bounces wildly between present and past using flashbacks during this 30-year period, we will cover those plot-centric elements when we arrive there in the story arc so they actually make sense. So, in 3985 BBY, again, BBY is before Battle of Yavin, um, the Galactic Republic began allowing private corporate investments in public infrastructure with the understanding that hyperspace lanes would be maintained and well-guarded. This would provide the Republic with large amounts of money to assist in the restoration, but also corporate oversight. And 3980, Vima Sunrider makes an entry regarding the redemption and death of Ulic Keldroma in the Great Holocron on Coruscant. In 3977, Zane Karak, the pluckiest upstart to ever use the Force and main protagonist of the uh, Knights of the Old Republic comic, is just barely admitted to the Jedi Enclave on Dantooine at the age of five. In 3976, the Mandalorian Wars begin in the Outer Rim with the Battle of Althir. Also, a gang war erupts on Taurus between two swoop-bite gangs, the Hidden Becks and the Black Volcars. 3973, the Battle of Cathar occurs. Mandalorian commander Cassus Fett orders genocide against the Cathar people and his forces kill more than 90% of the species on the planet. Discovery and publication of the events of this battle would eventually lead the Jedi to finally sanction involvement nine years later. 3970, the Khans disorders begin. The Agzadan leaders and people secede from the Khan sector from the Republic secede the, the can sector from the Republic after assuming power, and they begin ethnically cleansing or enslaving the other species of the sector. The disorders will last for 300 years despite constant attempt and failed interventions by the Jedi Republic, partly due to apathy by powerful senators, but also due to its highly remote location in the galaxy. And 3966, Terrace is admitted to the Republic after a local corporation, Losan Industries, bribes many senators to secure their votes. The Knights of the Old Republic meta-series. Now, if you're familiar with uh, the Old Republic stories, you are probably wondering when we are actually going to get to the Knights of the Old Republic gang game, and you're you're probably thinking, just just get there already. And and we are we're we're almost there. Um, the the meta series um, is is everything that was either spawn that was spawned by uh, the first game. Um, all the way up until uh, this the second game, basically. Um, it doesn't include the uh, the MMO, uh, but um, 
it, it includes everything else, the comics and the, the books and the short stories that came out of that. So uh, the Mandalorian Wars are a prelude to the Jedi Civil War, which less left the galaxy in disarray, as we see in uh, the Knights of the Old Republic game. Uh, those bloody battles with the Mandalorians serve as the backdrop for the KOTOR comic. Uh, though the comic is the second part of the KOTOR meta series that we have discussed, it seemed better to cover it at this point since we had yet to finish Tales of the Jedi. The meta series covers all the content spawned by the original Knights of the Old Republic game by BioWare and chronologically includes. Uh, 2005's Shadows and Light, which occurred in 3993 BBY, is a one-issue uh, KOTOR prequel comic, and we covered it last episode. Uh, 2006 through 2010's run of the Knights of the Old Republic comic, which covers 3964 through 3963. It's a 51-issue comic series that includes three related short stories. Uh, 2012's Knights of the Old Republic War, which is a five-issue follow-up to the original KOTOR comic. It takes place in 3962. Uh, 2003's Knights of the Old Republic, uh, the original video game by Bioware that started it all, that takes place in 3956. 2005's Unseen Unheard, which takes place in 3952 BBY, is a one-issue uh, Knights of the Old Republic 2 prequel comic that appears in Star Wars Tales 24, the same issue that Shadows and Light did. And then, of course, 2004's Knights of the Old Republic 2, The Sith Lords, which occurs in 3951, is the video game sequel to KOTOR and was produced by Obsidian Entertainment. All right. So we have now the uh, restoration period, which gives way to the Mandalorian Wars and the there's the Outer Rim sieges of the of uh, three nine seven six to three nine sixty five, and then there's the Republic invasion of three nine six four to three nine six zero. So created as a backstory for Knights of the Old Republic, the Mandalorian Wars would go on to be one of the biggest plot drivers of the entire Old Republic timeline. They were used to provide character development for Revan, Malak, Candrus, and many others. In Knights of the Old Republic 2, the Sith Lords, um, the Star, the, the wars, especially their horrific conclusion at Malachor 5, serve as the catalyst for both the main storyline and the player character, Mitra Surik's exile from the Jedi Order and the galaxy at large. The wars were initially presented as simply an extremely bloody galaxy-spanning conflict initiated by another Mandalorian warlord for the purposes of conquest and glory. Later, with the introduction of the Sith Empire from uh, the Old Republic uh, MMO, Mandalore, the Ultimate's warlike intentions were retconned. Now the Sith Empire Emperor deceived him, using the Mandalorians as a tool to soften and probe the Republic for his eventual invasion, though it was delayed some 300 years. This Sith threat would also prove to be the reason Revan and Malak left the galaxy before being turned to the dark side. There are a lot of pieces to the Mandalorian Wars, so this all this background will hopefully prove useful throughout the rest of the Knights of the Old Republic meta series and leading us into the Knights of the Old Republic MMO. 
Uh, story background. Uh, you, you might notice the timeline for the Mandalorian Wars significantly overlaps with the Restoration period, which was from 3995 to 3965 by the Republic's reckoning. And that's because Republic histories counted the Mandalorian Wars as beginning in 3964 when the Mandalorians finally attacked member worlds. Before that, the Mandos spent 12 years brutalizing and subjugating a large part of the Outer Rim. Uh, we will include um, links to the maps, uh, link to the maps of the battles uh, in the descriptions, uh, so you can have a better picture of it. The wars officially began in 3976 with the Battle of Althir, but Mandalore the Ultimate had been working secretly for much longer. In 3996, after taking the helm of his fallen predecessor at the end of the Great Sith War, the new Mandalore began covertly rebuilding, calling all Mandalorians to Dixun to prepare for a new war against the Republic. Because most of the Mandalorians had been wiped out, few were alive to return, but new warriors from many species wanted the challenge and heeded the call. By the time of the New Wars, the Mandalorians were comprised mostly of humans with other species scattered throughout the ranks. It appears that Mandalore the Ultimate is one of, if not the last remaining member of the Tong species in the galaxy at the time of the KOTOR comics. Uh, Dixum is a mostly secret Ford base of the Mandalorians away from their home planet of Mandalore from 3996 until their defeat at Malachor 5 in 3960, though they would reconvene on Dixum again during the Sith, Sith Civil War as well. In 3978, the Sith Emperor sent one of his agents to influence Mandalore the Ultimate to invade the Republic. The agent used the dark side and Sith sorcery to overwhelm the Mandalore's mind and tell him of the Sith Emperor's vision of the Mandalorian conquest of the Republic. While Mandalore was already planning an invasion, the Sith Emperor's successful intervention seems to have increased both his scope and ambitions. That year, Mandalore and his top lieutenant, Cassus Fett, also reformed the Crusaders into the Neo-Crusaders. These elite warriors would serve as the vanguard for the Mandalorian attacks for years. And this brings us to Canon Update 15. Mandalorian Neo-Crusaders were made canon in the uh, Season 3 of the, the Clone Wars episode Wookiee Hunt, which depicts a piece of Neo-Crusader armor. Extra content from the episode stated that they were ancient Mandalorian warriors and that the helmet was kept as a trophy. From 3976 from to 3965, the Mandalorians set about conquering a large swath of territory in the Outer Rim, controlling worlds from Mandalore in the south to Drathos in the north and the entirety of Old Sith space. The Jedi and Republic were both aware of the Mandalorian invasions, but avoided involvement due to the recent memory of Exar Kun's war and because it did not then affect member worlds. The Mandalorian attacks also led to an untold number of refugees flooding into Republic worlds to escape the bloodshed, exacerbating tensions further. In 3966, Republic business interests on the newly admitted world of Terrace were finally affected by Mandalorian advances and powerful Teresian corporations complained, to the, complained so the Republic used another half-measure. The Republic sent a small fleet to create a security cordon named for the resource-rich moons of Terrace, the Jebel Vanquo Tarnath Line. If the, Man if the Mandalorians crossed the line, it would mean war, but only with the Republic. 
Curiously, the Jedi did not agree to enter the war on the side of their longtime Republic allies, even if the Republic had been attacked by the Mandalorians. The High Council was even more fearful of entering into another galactic conflict and the lure of the dark side on many young Jedi. In 3965 and 3964, the false war played out with the Mandalorians probing Republic defenses along the line at border worlds such as Surja, Van Quo, and Flashpoint. The false war accomplished little other than a months-long stalemate between the fleets, though the Mandalorians eventually captured Flashpoint. Mandalore the Ultimate handed the planet's super-advanced scientific research station over to one of his top lieutenants, a Mandalorian scientist named Dr. Demigal. In 3964, a young, powerful Jedi began to openly and powerfully agitate for sanctioned Jedi involvement in the Mandalorian Wars to stop the atrocities being committed against helpless Outer Rim worlds. This Jedi gained many followers, and they eventually formed a movement and splinter group, the Revanchists, intent on intervention in the wars. They believed the Order was violating the Jedi Code by letting innocents suffer simply because they were outside Republic jurisdiction. The members went to Jedi temples and enclaves to seek out new members and then began unsanctioned scouting of Mandalorian forces locked in a stalemate at the Jebel Vanquo Tarnith line. Before departing, all members made the unorthodox decision of taking the revanchist leader on as a Jedi master and serving as his apprentice, even if only ceremonially. As the Kotor comics begin in 3964, the Mandalorians wait for any sign of weakness in the Republic to strike and commence the war, while many of the most important figures in the galaxy are at or near Taurus. Many members of the Revanchist Jedi, a large part of the Republic fleet led by Saul Karath, the first watch circle of the Jedi Covenant, and Mandalore the Ultimate with much of the Mandalorian fleet. This brings us to the Knights of the Old Republic comic, Crossroads and Commencement, written by John Jackson Miller in 2006, which is a one-issue supplement and a six-issue comic arc. Um, Here's the meta. As with uh, Tales of the Jedi, we'll cover the uh, Knights of the Old Republic comic and arcs, though in slightly less detail to to the number of issues. Um, There's Still with Love, Always with Love. The Night comic series contains 18 arcs spread over 51 total issues beginning in 2006 and ending in 2010, with Miller writing the entire run. Though it tells a number of adventures, the comic broadly tells two intertwined stories, the first effort to clear a bumbling Jedi's name for crimes he didn't commit, and another about unraveling the somehow galaxy-spanning mysteries behind an oppressed race called the Arcanian Offshoots. All of this plays out using the outbreak of the Mandalorian Wars with the Republic as a backdrop. They are interspersed with references and events that cross over with uh, Knights of the Old Republic, the video game. We learn Malak's real name, how Revan got his infamous mask, and why everyone rightfully hates the Mandalorians. It's deep KOTOR lore for the sake of it that also tells some stories about regular people in and out of the Republic trying to make it without wealth or the right name. And that's our kind of story. This is the people's history of the Old Republic. The supplemental issue, Crossroads, gives background on the characters, but was released after the first issue due to internal creative issues. Miller has said that he wanted the comic to portray the human cost of the Republic ignoring the Mandalorian Wars for so long and compare the Republic Republic stance to Europe accommodating Axis invasions leading up to the outbreak of World War II. The series would eventually spawn three short stories in the six-issue sequel comic series as well, all of which we will cover. And a quick point to that World War II 
prologue, a lot of this reads as the um, as covering the 1930s as part of an already going World War II, whereas in American history, at least, we tend to break it up as a thing that started in 39 in Europe and 41 for the United States. But there's a mm. lot that happens before that is the context and like certainly the first you know, the Second World War is experienced um, in the areas under uh Japanese or German invasion or occupation or coercion um, or Soviet consolidation, all of those areas um, have a longer history of the war than we tend to. Uh, the United States, like the Republic, is showing up late to a war here, not uh, at the start. Yeah, it's uh, it, it was good that uh, it was it was fortuitous that uh, that you're a. Uh, uh, a military journalist on this because uh because i'm i'm certainly not <laughs> so i'm just uh you know he he was talking about how he wanted to lead into all of this but you're absolutely right we uh we, we get a lot of the background and they've had this huge war going on and then uh the republic just shows up like uh like the americans kind of do like oh there's this thing that's been going on for a couple of days and they're like no we've been dying for a decade what are you morons doing? <laughs> what have you morons been doing for 11 years um yeah so uh characters get ready because there are a few uh zane carrick a human jedi who was accepted into the order despite his force ability being described as simply quote marginal and they call it that it's, it's they make a lot of uh attempts to show that uh he doesn't have this huge force ability. Someone like uh, like Luke or or Leia or Nomi or or Anakin or someone like that. Um, th- that that's the point of Zane. Um, he's one of the main protagonists of the Kotor comics and was intended by Miller to be the antithesis of the Jedi we normally see, who are super powerful and rise above the others so easily. Miller's initial conception was also partially based on the early player character development of the original KOTOR when the player is still, you know, quote, getting used to the force. Zane is one of the most interesting characters in the Star Wars universe, as we will see. Uh, Next is Jarael. Um, she is an Arcanian offshoot junker who accompanies Zane as an, and is another main protagonist of the series. She goes by many names, doesn't trust easily, has a mysterious past she doesn't want to talk about, and is considered beautiful by just about every being she meets. Her backstory is told as part of the Arcanian offshoot plot later in the series. Uh, Marn Hieroglyph. A Snivian con man, small businessman, and restaurateur who becomes Zane's partner and eventual best friend. Much like Han Solo, he's a good-hearted scoundrel. Unlike Han Solo, he's terrible in a firefight. Uh, Snivians were mammalian humanoids with snouts and thick skin. Then we've got Camper, who's uh, Jariel's partner in crime. He's also an Arcanian offshoot with a mysterious past. Though much older than the rest of the group, um, and rescued Jariel at a very young age. They have watched after each other ever since, like surrogate father and daughter. Camper pilots the last, res- the last resort, but also suffers badly from a lack of health care in Taurus's undercity, sometimes lapsing into fits and passing out. There's the Jedi Covenant, a secret organization of Jedi established on Coruscant um, and founded... founded uh, Kernda Dre to prevent the Sith from rising again, comprised of many watch circles, each of which was made up of seers and specialized in different types of visions. 
The Covenant also used shadows, Jedi who had their identities erased, and then hunted down Sith artifacts. As we will see, the Jedi Covenant intended to prevent the return of the Sith by any means necessary. Any means. Much of their work is centered on a force vision known as the Prophecy of the Five. There's Lucian Dre, who is Zane Karak's Jedi Master, who is cruel and manipulative. Despite being the only son of an extremely wealthy seer, he developed into more of a warrior like his father, meaning his mother, Kindra, lost interest in him. Lucian is a protector of the First Watch Circle of the Jedi Covenant located on Taurus. And then there are four other members of the First uh, Watch Circle. They are all seers and Jedi Consulars, including... Quinilla, a... Miraluka Jedi Master and prolific seer of the First Watch Circle. She is a surrogate daughter to Krenda Dre, who, uh, which causes some problems with Lucian, uh, especially when they become romantically involved later. She is responsible for uh, the start of the Rogue Moon Prophecy, which kicks off the events of the comics. Rana Tay a Togretta Jedi Master and Seer of the First Watch Circle. She is prone to visions that manifest as nightmares and has terrible bouts of anger. Outside of Lucian, she probably goes the farthest to cover up the Jedi Covenant. Uh, if you don't remember, the Togretta uh, are a uh, humanoid-type species and are some, uh, some famous Togretta are Ahsoka Tano and Shakti from uh, the Clone Wars and the prequel movies. There is, I guess, Zamar, a kill Jedi Master and Seer. He becomes extremely uncomfortable with the path of the Jedi Covenant by the end. Killer and Infant. An amphibious humanoid species with mouths that resemble uh, Cthulhu. They have the little uh, (laughs) squid arm things. I I don't really know how to describe it otherwise. And then uh, Feln, the fifth and final member of the First Watch Circle. He is a Fiorian Jedi Master and Seer, a charlatan to his people. He eventually gets many of them killed for his acts. Fiorian have long tendrils flowing around the backs of their heads, similar to Nautilans. Um, and then the other four Padawans of the first watch circle of first watch circle members who are not named Zane Carrick. There is Oju, Shah Jelavan, Camlin, and Garn. Uh, yeah. So what else is there to say, but they're all dead. Um, their masters murdered them in what becomes known as the Padawan massacre, which Zane witnesses and through a tremendous set of circumstances, ends up being the catalyst for the Mandalorian invasion of the Republic, and thus, by proxy, both the Jedi and Sith of wars. Effectively, the morons in the Jedi Covenant nearly brought about the extinction of the Jedi Order and the end of the Republic. There is... Oh, that's a lot. There is a T1LB, who is a droid with memory problems. Imagine that. Lovingly known as LB, he eventually becomes a part of the crew with Zane and Jariel. He has an unquenchable bloodlust against the five Jedi Masters on Terrace because they killed him, even though he wiped that memory. It definitely has uh, the droid equivalent of PTSD. There is Vandar Toker, the Jedi Master of Yoda's species, who serves on both served on both the Dantooine Jedi Enclave Council and the Jedi High Council. Uh, fans of uh, Kotor will remember him as re- mast- as a master that Revan and Bastil interact with on Dantooine. He briefly attempts to help his former apprentice Zane here. Then there is Squint, 
a human Jedi member of the Urvanchists who is tall and wears red armor. He's given the nickname Squint due to the Republic's practices of giving refugees last name based on their home planet. And Squint's home planet has for has a very long name, so he got a nickname. He's uh, definitely no one important in the story later. Nope, not important at all. Locations. Uh, we briefly return to Dantooine, and then we get uh, two new locales, Terrace, a city planet with upper, middle, and lower levels sharply divided by species and class. A few hundred years prior to this, Terrace was a wealthy planet that sought, that sought to emulate Coruscant and, and Alderaan in the Outer Rim after major hyperspace routes opened elsewhere and it became less attractive. A planet-wide recession occurred and a civil war finally erupted due to the stark class disparities. The noble classes won the war eventually, but the planet was devastated and would never recover. This is when Terrace began banishing its criminals to the Undercity to be attacked by the beasts that dwell down there. At this point in time, there is a Jedi Tower and training facility on Terrace, which is home to the First Watch Circle, and the Rogue Moon of Terrace, a tidally locked moon that sits within Terrace's asteroid belt but has retrograde orbit against the asteroid, so it is constantly bombarded by them, both large and small ones. Has extremely low gravity, such that it could, such that a being could drop from orbit and land safely without artificially slowing down. It is the site of the rogue moon prophecy, and once again, I must remind you that it is not my fault or our fault that they didn't name these things better. <laughs> um, and uh, the timeline here is 30, 3964. Uh, the early arcs of the Kotor comics, such as commencement, definitely occur in 3964 because we are told by other reference books that that's when the Mandalorian vision of the Republic occurred, but uh, it gets kind of fuzzy later on. On to the story. Zane Kirk can't catch a break. He's not great with the Force. His master is openly disdainful of him, and he can't seem to catch even marginal criminals. In his eighth attempt to catch Marn Hieroglyph and his eighth failure, um, due to Zane's bumbling and general ineptitude, Marn escapes and Zane is sent, falling to his death from a tall building. However, a Jedi named Squint, who was sent by Zane's master, Lucian Dre, to look for him, arrives in time to save Carrick. Squint explains why he was sent to the Taurus Jedi Tower by his master, the leader of the Revanchists, to find more allies for their cause. Zane politely declines, and Squint says he will ask again, and also tells the clumsy Jedi that sometimes a Jedi has to enter the darkness to save the light. Hmm. At this moment, Jedi Counselor and member of the First Watch Circle, Kid and... Anilia uh, senses a strong disturbance in the Force. The other four members of the First Watch Circle, Lucian Dre, Felm, uh, Zamar, and Ranate, all agree to investigate the Omen. So briefly, Knights uh, of the Republic introduced and updated schools of thought that Jedi could adopt after achieving knighthood. While these are always fluid between characters, they were generally divided into three groups. Jedi Consular served as diplomats and seers. They wield lightsabers with green blades, and rarely participate in combat except as a necessity. Its counterpart would be the Sith Inquisitor. The Jedi Sentinel, which is a middle road between the Guardians and Consulars, they serve in combat roles as well as studying the mysteries of the Force. Most had yellow lightsaber blades. Their counterpart to the Sith Assassin, Zane, was considered a Sentinel. 
Finally, there is the Jedi Guardian, who are combat-focused warriors of the light. They prefer to study the blade than the force. Usually they have the blue lightsaber blades, and their counterpart is the Sith warrior. Later, Zane is chasing Griff again, this time across some terrace rooftops. Zane nearly captures his old foe before slipping and falling through a skylight right into the building where the Jedi Masters are planning that evening's knighting ceremony for their Padawans. Zane had forgotten all about the banquet, and Lucian berates his clumsy his clumsy apprentice and tells him he must pay for the damages to the building out of his own money before retreating with the other four masters to meditate. Apparently, uh, some Je- apparently Jedi uh, Padawans had their own money then. Uh, the other Padawans, Uju, Shah, Jelavan, Garn, and Camlin, all try to cheer Zane up despite his mistake, and Shad offers some credits to help him with the repair bill. Zane empties all his credits and has just enough to cover with Shad's donation. Also, Zane and Shad's sister, Shell, awkwardly flirt with one another. It's it's really kind of cute, honestly. Um, The four Padawans are sure to be knighted, and they say Zane might might be as well, but Zane laughs off the suggestion as preposterous. Shad suggests that it will happen because they need for because they need knights due to the probable Mandalorian invasion, and Zane laughs that off as well. They mean well, but it's clear to everyone, including Zane, that he won't be knighted. Later in the day, as he's paying for the damages, Zane sees Marn and gives chase again, this time successfully catching his quarry. Unfortunately, this makes Carrick late again, this time for the knighting ceremony, so he leaves the Snivian handcuffs to his speeder bike. Zane is excited he got his man and thinks his luck might be turning around. He rushes in to tell his ma- the masters the good news, takes the left up and steps at the door to find his four closest friends in the world dead, with four Jedi masters standing over them, lightsabers drawn. Lucian moves to apprehend his Padawan, but Zane gives him the slip and the chase is on. The Padawan Massacre, as the event would come to be known, is one of the most pivotal events in galactic history and the galaxy at large. Um, only finds out about it because five Jedi Masters can't catch one Jedi Moron. Sorry, you know, he's not quite a Moron, but certainly the skill level is there and it's a fine line. Um, anyway, we get a brief flashback and we see that Jedi Master Vandar Tokar is speaking with Zane's mother on Dantooine when he's five years old. The old Jedi of Yoda's species tells her that Zane has marginal talent on the Force, but with training he could become quite competent in certain uses, especially kinship, which he had displayed by forming quick bonds with the other four potential uh, students. Zane's mom is also worried about dark Jedi on the loose, but Master Tokar lets her know her son is safe and the Jedi are ever vigilant. While not explicitly stated, it is clear from context that other children being tested on Dantooine were the same four Padawans slain by the First Watch Circle. They studied on Dantooine together before being assigned to five Jedi Masters who resided in the Jedi Tower on Terrace. So the Padawan Massacre also meant that every friend Zane had in the galaxy, every friend he did for more than 13 years since they joined the Order on the same day, was also dead. After his escape to the Lower City, the Masters blamed the deaths on Zane and Marin Hieroglyph, placing bounties on their heads and plastering their faces across the planet. The unlikely pair get lost in the lower city slums in a bar while Zane processes the five stage the five stages of trauma and loss he just suffered. 
Currently, he's on denial, but he's fat, but he's swiftly moving towards anger. However, don't let all this talk of Zane being mediocre in the Force fool you. He's quite resourceful and plenty clever. He figures the best way to clear his name is to figure out why the Masters would do such a thing, and he therefore must retrace the steps during their training, but that means getting off-world. Fortunately, a con man like Marn knows a guy in the Undercity. Unfortunately, the Jedi Masters were able to meditate on Zane and find him through the Force, seeing his next move. As Zane and Marn head toward the Undercity, we learn that the Rat Ghoul Plague is already rampant there. Rat Ghoul are creatures turned into mindless, ravenous feeding machines after being infected with the Rat Ghoul Plague. It, it literally turns whatever the being looks like into a. like a. I don't even know how to describe it other than just like a messy, disgusting creature. Um, but it really doesn't affect force sensitives. Um, unfortunately for the masters, they went directly to the undercity and had to fight a bunch of rat ghouls before realizing their prey were only going toward that part of town. Still in the lower city, Griff and Zane make their way to the contact, but not before Zane cuts off his Padawan braid, ceremoniously cutting his ties with the Order. As they arrive at the spot, they set up a trap and the jig is up. Zane gets the shit kicked out of him by an Arcanian named Jariel, while Griff tries to haggle about old debts. You know, the Han Solo thing. Zane finally gets a word in Edgewise, only to find out that Losan Industries, the most powerful company and largest employer in Terrace, is pulling off world because it is unsafe. The Jedi and their image pull a lot of weight on the planet. Jariel says he's to blame for all the problems on Terrace and tells them to leave, but Griff's contact, another Arcanian named Camper, shows up. The four argue inside Camper's junkyard about who is who, and Jane calls Jariel Darth Sunshine, which means the title Darth clearly predates Darth Revan and Malak, who used it some five years later. But the grievances are set aside when the Masters show up and Camper goes to the cockpit of the Last Resort, which isn't a junkyard, but a junk-hauling spaceship. Just out of atmosphere, the Last Resort putters out, losing power completely. It is adrift, but Camper fixes some wires regaining power and breaking away from the ships that had been moving in before losing them in the asteroid belt. Zane, wildly careening from anger to bargaining in the grieving process, contacts Master Tokare on, da on Dantooine, believing his old teacher might help. He does so against instruction against the instructions of Jariel because it's a terrible idea and he could easily be traced. Zane does it anyway, and Master Tokare doesn't believe his story, which really isn't that surprising. It's one Padawan's word against five um, distinguished Jedi Masters. Uh, Zane explains he couldn't have killed them because he's not that strong in the Force, but the old Master and the Order believe the dark side aided him, and he simply doesn't remember. Vendar urges Zane to turn himself into the nearest Jedi Consular so they can work on recovering his lost memory. However, both are astonished to find that the four Consulars are stationed on Terrace, an unusual circumstance. The call is cut short, however to avoid the masters who traced the signal because Zane had to move the ship out of the asteroid belt to make contact. Again, this was just a terrible idea. After the last resort gets away, Zane realizes the last place the masters and the apprentices had all gathered together was on the rogue moon of Terrace just two days prior. When Zane and Jaria land on the rogue moon, they can't find any trace of what happened, nor can Zane feel anything through the force. 
They talk through it. Eventually, Zane remembers the Masters had used their loading droid, T1LB, to set up the shield so the droid would have recorded their actions. Zane uses the Force to help recover the droid, but they are found by the Masters and Terrace Police. However, Griffin Camper immobilized the Jedi ship using the Last Resort's cannon, and Camper gets to work on LB as they escape. The droid reluctantly shows footage of the Masters experiencing and relating their vision as Zane hears the Rogue Moon prophecy. Now's as good a time as any to discuss the role of prophecy in this series. And uh, when we see prophecy, we mean force visions and their interpretations. As the first half of the series focuses on exonerating Zane, it also unfolds the mystery behind two prophecies, the Prophecy of the Five and the Rogue Moon Prophecy. The Prophecy of the Five will play out with the story, but the Rogue Moon Prophecy is told early with the first watch, watch circle attempting, attempting to puzzle it out or avoid their fates entirely. The Rogue Moon Prophecy occurred on, you guessed it, Terrace's Rogue Moon. It doesn't have another name. You blame someone else. Uh, it occurred between the four consular, consulars of the first watch circle who were meditating while waiting for their Padawans to finish their final test before knighthood. Their apprentices had been told to find their masters using only the force while wearing spacesuits with the blast shields down over their eyes, thus blinding them. The spacesuits are red. This is key. So far, this sounds easy, except it's called the Rogue Moon because it has a retrograde orbit contrary to the rest of the asteroid field surrounding Terrace and is constantly bombarded by asteroids and fragments. Also, it has very low gravity. LB shows the four, the four consulars then meditated deep into the force and experienced the prophecy simultaneously while Lucy and Dre looked on. The entire group saw a Sith Lord wearing red armor saw that a Sith Lord wearing red armor would bring down the Jedi Order, and each saw the manner of their own death. Quanilia saw herself killed with dead Jedi all over Coruscant as she rushed to save a female Jedi there. Rana Tay saw that she would die on Terrace, surrounded by flames during the Mandalorian invasion that had not yet happened. Feln saw his own death on his home planet, his own lightsaber replaced with a stick in his hand, and Zamar was leading the Republic fleet into battle against the Mandalorians when his own ship fired upon him, killing him. The group decided to take this prophecy hyper-literally due to the Jedi Covenant's strict policy of not allowing the Sith to rise again. They remember the red suits their Padawans were wearing and believe this to be confirmation that one of them is the Sith Lord foretold. So they do the only reasonable thing they could think of, concoct a plan to murder five teenagers the very next day because they had red space suits. Again, in case this isn't clear enough, these five morons set in motion a decade of events that included three wars and the near destruction of the Jedi Order because they had a bad tarot reading. The last image LB shows is him following orders to walk near a cliff edge and then being thrown off a cliff by his masters. Seeing this portrayal and his own death sends LB into a rage, nearly killing the crew because he's a very large droid. Camper rips some circuits to stop the action, but during the commotion, LB also deleted the entire bit of death footage of his own accord. Because it is contrary to droid programming, seeing its master kill it or its own death causes severe programming breakdowns. It's all pretty messed up. Gamper is able to rebel, repair LB back to a working state, and he kept his hatred of his masters, even though he also seems to have erased that specific memory. So LB has uh, some PTSD, which is certainly something for a droid to have. 
it's uh, actually a lot of um, in uh, there's a C3PO one shot comic uh, that came out after the Force Awakens, and uh, the PTSD that LB has is a lot um, is similar to uh, what C3PO has because C3PO has. Um, when they do the the memory wipes, they're not full. So he has these like flashes of memory that come back and he doesn't understand what they are. We, we understand because they're moments that we've seen from the movies, but to, to him, they're not. So it's, uh, it, it's interesting. I don't know if they pulled it directly from there, but, uh, but yeah, LB definitely um, in the line of, uh, of, uh, C-3PO and uh, now, of course, L3 with everything that happened in Solo. Um, As Zane was puzzling over what to do with this information, their ship was pulled in by bounty hunters looking to make a quick score. Griff negotiates his, Jeryl, and Camper's freedom, but Zane's price is too high and they won't let him go. He realizes that staying with his friends is only going to endanger them and agrees to be turned over to the Masters. Carrick's return to Terrace is met with celebration as the public had lost faith in the Jedi and began rioting after Zane escaped. The people of Terrace saw it as the Jedi losing control and the Mandalorian with the Mandalorians breathing down their necks. We see that the rioting and terror led the Mandalorians to push even closer to the Jebel Van Tarnith line, where they took Serja and captured many revanchist Jedi, including Squint. In the Jedi Tower, Lucian reveals that they are members of the Jedi Covenant and they did kill the Padawans just before executing the pirate leader. Zane has finally moved from depression to acceptance, both at the loss of his former life and his seemingly imminent demise. Dre then tells Carrick about the night of the Padawan massacre and why why they didn't wait for his arrival to start. As the four Padawans enter, they place their lightsabers in a ceremonial position, but Chad noticed that the Masters were still wearing theirs, even Lucian. The master said all would be knighted, even Zane, which caused the students to rejoice until they started to realize all the awful things the masters always said about Zane and that he finished last in all of their tests. The masters try to brush it off, but Chad won't let the issue die. He can say to the force that they are lying and they demand to know what is going on. At that moment, the four masters ignited their weapons and killed their Padawans just as Zane arrived at the tower. The Masters justify their actions by talking about Exar Kun's fall to the dark side and the need to intervene whenever it is present, even if those who die are innocents. Lucian tells Zane that they will find and kill his friends too because they knew too much. Carrick is horrified but accepts his own death, asking only that someone help Shad's younger siblings who have no means to, t- to support themselves. Before the the killing blow can come, however, the tower is rocked by blaster fire, shutting down essential systems. Then a ship blew open the skylight and a lightsaber-wielding warrior stepped out wearing a red spacesuit. This terrified the masters who believed the Sith Lord had come to kill them. But the mysterious stranger turned out to be Jeryl, who guessed correctly at the master's fear. As the, angered, as the angered Jedi got up to strike them down, Zane saw that they had all lost their lightsabers and the constant attacks and used the force to throw them to the ground below. As they escaped using the spacesuit's jet boosters, Jeryl explains that Griff bribed and talked their way out of the pirate ship after their boss was murdered and LB handed over Jedi Tower schematics for a chance to harm the Masters with a little bit of camper's tech expertise. 
Jeriel explained that they might have gotten free of Zane and the Jedi if they left, but Carrick's also a different kind of person, the kind who gives himself up to Jedi trying to kill him and hopes it will free his ragtag group of friends. Griff makes Zane the second member of his operation and gives him the position of henchman after derisively calling him intern most of the arc. Three weeks later, Karis burns. Rioters have ransacked all levels of the city, the sector senator is missing, and there is no presence left to control the violence. The members of the First Watch Circle, meanwhile, are being recalled all the way to Coruscant for their horrific failures to oversee terrorists and the deaths of their students. They fear they will be broken up and have to work apart. Their bickering is interrupted by a holovid from Zane who informs them that he has had a vision that one of them would come forward and clear his name and the rest would die. Finally, Zane has achieved acceptance both of his newfound place in the galaxy and to the tragedy he has witnessed, and he is ready to fight for his future. Thanks for listening to A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we will continue our march through the uh, Knights of the Old Republic comics. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to People's History of the Old Republic on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. You can follow us on Twitter at Photorpod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm Atherton KD on Twitter. I'm at Lucas Amazing on Twitter. Thank you very much and may the force be with you.